Welcome to episode 45 of the RSA Resident and Student podcast series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Taylor Britton, student at University of Queensland Oshner's Clinical School and member of the RSA Education Committee, speaks with Dr. Peter W., who has been a presenter at multiple AEM scientific assemblies. Today, Mr. Britton and Dr. W. discuss tachycardia in the critically ill patient. My name is Taylor Britton, a medical student recording for AAM RSA. This is Dr. Peter W. I'm a professor of clinical medicine for LSU in New Orleans, as well as professor of clinical surgery for Tulane in New Orleans. I'm the chief medical officer of University Medical Center. My training is both in pulmonary critical care as well as emergency medicine. I've attended in both the ICU and the emergency department for over 25 years. So we're lucky to have him here. We're going to talk about his lecture titled Going Too Fast in the ICU, Tachycardia in the Critically Ill Patient. And I think maybe you, I think you kind of had some ideas on, you know, some topics you would right. want to touch so on. It's a, it's a shorter presentation. And so the, the initial points were trying to determine whether or not it was sinus tachycardia versus an arrhythmia and understanding if we looked in and really lead to and see P waves that were upright and then inverted in AVR, then we're pretty safe to say this is sinus in origin. If it's inverted in two, if it's upright in AVR, then we can start talking about junctional rhythms or other abnormal rhythms And that really argues a different therapeutic. For unstable patients that are going very fast, we want to think about electricity. So I don't want to go into that. And for stable patients who are not sinus tachycardia, a lot can be discussed about the antiarrhythmic agents. But I didn't want to talk about that. I wanted to talk more about the approach and talking about the H's, the A's, and and the P's. Mm And, you know, it's just, there's so much that can cause sinus tachycardia in our patients. And the presentation really talks about everything from hyperpyrexia and hypoxia to anemia to ACS to PE and pyrexia. You know, but, I mean, literally, it's, it's about nearly 30 different differentials that we should be considering when we're thinking about persistent tachycardia. And there's a couple of other different rare circumstances, once you've excluded all of those, that can present as well, but those typically get referred to cardiology and it involves ablation therapy and EP individuals and things along those lines. But what we talk about in the presentation is having a real logical approach. And that logical approach involves the tank the hose, and the pump, and the tank being really preload and how we assess preload status. And again, we used to do CVP, and thankfully that's been fairly well kicked to the curb because of lack of evidence. And we use ultrasound at the bedside, and we look at variability of the inferior vena cava, the IVC, during normal inspirations and during sniff testing. 
and looking, and depending on who you read and who you believe, anywhere between 20% and 50% decrease in caliber um, is, correlates with someone who would tolerate uh, fluid bolus. The reality is, for IVC, that the same confounders for CVP take place for IVC assessment as well. So if I have pulmonary hypertension, if I have valvular disease, if I have pericardial disease, if I have myocardial disease, I could have false readings of IVC. So it would be a static IVC with no diameter change. I could also have liver disease that could factor into that as well. So it's really probably not our best tool. It's helpful if we see dynamic collapse variability. However, if it shows no variability, it really hasn't answered a question. doesn't mean that the patient wouldn't tolerate from a fluid bolus, which means we'd have to look. There's a couple of reviews written in the last two years that really argues towards pulse pressure variation as being the best standard we have currently for preload assessment. And understanding whether we use an arterial line, there's a technology made by Massimo here in San Diego who does a finger probe, like a pulse oximeter that looks at pulse pressure variation. And you can use ultrasound of the brachial artery to look at pulse pressure amplitude variation as well. So there's non-invasive and invasive ways of doing this and then looking for pulse amplitude variations greater than 10 to 15%. And if it's greater than 10 to 15%, then it's predictive of a patient who would benefit from a fluid bolus. Now, people have used passive leg raise, which is simply having a patient in the supine position, lifting up their legs into a kind of chair seated position and looking at the pulse pressure amplitude changes associated with this. What this does, physiologically, it's like an autotransfusion. It's taking blood from your lower extremities and bringing it back to the right heart and seeing what the heart does with that. And so if the heart has stronger stroke volume as a result of that, then the pulse amplitude will increase. So it's like a mini transfusion surrogate. And so that looks to be, based on analysis, our best current standard. I would say that we're still looking for the best standard, but that's currently our best standard. And clearly, clearly, it's better from a sensitivity and specificity than CVP, and it's also better than single application of IVC ultrasound. Now, I'll get back to how I would use the ultrasound a little bit more in just a bit, but that addresses tank. And so if, in fact, we see benefit from a fluid bolus, depending on the patient's underlying disease and current hemodynamics, we give between 250 to anywhere to a liter, two liters of fluid. And that fluid's typically crystalloids, and we look to be embracing Ringer's lactate at this point. And so that is given in a fluid bolus and a fluid bolus. So this isn't we're changing the IV fluids from 100 cc's per hour to 200 cc's an hour. We're giving that fluid bolus over 5 to 10 minutes. Now, whether that be 250, 500, or even a liter, we want that at one time so that we can see, has there been a 
hemodynamic change. And the power of all of this is in repeat measurements, like anything else. So we'd look at the IVC again, we'd do another passive leg raise, we'd look at pulse amplitude changes and see how the patient does. But the reality is, if the patient has been tachycardic and hypotensive, we don't just rely on that fluid bolus. So if we gave a fluid bolus and the blood pressure came up a little bit, but not enough, the heart rate came down a little bit, but not enough, and we gave another fluid bolus, and we continually chased our tail, and now we're an hour and a half, two hours into this process, and the patient is still abjectly hypotensive, then we've harmed the patient. Is there evidence that says that? There is. And that evidence looks at a delay in norepinephrine in the institution of vasopressors for septic shock. What it basically said was, for every hour we delay institution of a vasopressor, we increase mortality in septic shock by about 5%. Average time that it takes us to institute vasopressors is far in excess of two hours. And so I'm not a big fan of that. So if I have a tachycardic patient who's hypotensive, while I'm ordering the fluid bolus, I'm contacting pharmacy to say, send down norepinephrine. And it tends to be our vasopressor du jour. Mm-hmm. And then patients who are tachycardic, we certainly would avoid dopamine since dopamine is associated with tachydysrhythmic events. So tank, hose being mean arterial blood pressure, if we aren't reaching our goals after giving at least, at least one fluid bolus, we would go ahead and reach for a vasopressor and then follow that with the goal of being 65 millimeters of mercury. The next caveat, because we talked about the tank, the hose, is now the pump. What we really want to embrace is not just the IVC, but to corkscrew that probe up to the chest and look at left ventricular function. I think it's something that emergency medicine physicians have got to grow comfortable with doing. And it isn't to discern an ejection fraction that's 30% compared to one that's 25%. That's not where we need to be. Where we need to be is this is global hypokinesis versus this is a hyperdynamic LV. And the way that we do that is we kind of look at the LV walls, and if they're coming close to touching each other, that's a vigorous ejection fraction. If they're barely squeezing in, that's a hypokinetic heart. That's where we need to be because that changes our approaches dramatically. Because in the setting of an IVC that's dilated and a heart that's vigorous with the walls practically touching each other, that patient will tolerate a fluid bolus. In the same setting with a static IVC and somebody with a hypokinetic heart, we're really not going to push our fluids on that patient. We're going to start thinking about other agents to maybe drive output a little bit better and maybe call into our consultants. But having, having made that assessment, we can then have far more intelligent conversations with our consultants. Mm-hmm. And we can also document far better our medical decision-making. Mm-hmm. And you know, even with that ultrasound assessment, like, I think some people may get scared thinking that there has to be an exact calculation of ejection fraction or something like that, where you really just can look at it and give it kind of a global assessment of how the heart's pumping and like you said, give better consultation with you know, our Again, friends and stuff. Again, we're using ultrasound at point of care to help us with our decision-making. 
We're not doing it to say this is the be-all, end-all, here's the final piece. But it, it certainly serves us well for our medical decision-making. Like you said, those are very nice kind of succinct rundown of your, of your second lecture. So I think that's pretty much all we have. I don't have any further questions. So we appreciate taking the time today. I know you had a long day. or still have a long day to go, but we appreciate you being here. Happy to participate. Thanks, guys. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.